Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, it is only June and already this summer feels like the longest, hottest summer I can recall. (laughs) It has been hot here in New England for the past week. Uh, but But now it's actually pretty chilly outside, which is just making me really anxious about climate change. But this is not a climate change show. Well, so I feel like I spend a lot of time these days just sort of, you know, muttering to myself about some... These days, that <laughs> what has changed? So uh, there'll be some um, hot button education story in the news because weirdly, that's all the news is right now are these crazy, mm. you know, like educate. we complain all the time, nobody pays attention to education and suddenly that's all they're paying attention to. And so there I am, you know, I'm, I'm reading these stories and then I'm muttering to myself about how people are missing some fundamental piece of this. And you should know that I am recording this in the heartland. I'm with my dad and he is the king of the mutterers. So we are engaged and and kind of like he's he doesn't mutter about education stories and he would say that his mutterings are really some like insight about how the uh-huh. world functions, but let's just say that there's a lot of muttering happening right now in Springfield, Illinois. You like to mutter with your fodder. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the kind of heartland humor that, it, like, when I. Hey, um, I lived in Minnesota for two years. Wow. I had no idea, Jack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so, I, what I'm picking up, Jennifer, is that uh, you and I are going to take it upon ourselves to, to fill in the gap here uh, for people. What are they missing? What are these uh, tawdry stories uh, about education and, you know, the, the, wretched things that our teachers are doing to our kids out there in classrooms right now. What's actually going on? Is that is that our duty today? That is exactly it. And to make things a little more exciting, what I've done is I have curated, that's the kind of word you use in Somerville, I've curated <laughs> audio clips that, that I'm going to ask you to listen to them and then I'm going to make you try to guess what the topic is. And this will bring me great joy and pleasure. Yeah, well, I'll be giving you handcrafted answers here in the People's Republic of Somerville. We like things like that that will um, be totally uh, boutique for our audience. You mean bespoke? Bespoke, yes, exactly. (laughs) As I've said, when visiting schools across the country, these last two months. For educators, the pandemic will serve to sharpen our swords for the real fight ahead. The fight to address inequities in education. That's the real fight. The inequities that were made worse during these last 12 months. Leading through the pandemic, the setback was the setup for a reimagined education system built on equity and access. I am optimistic that our best days are ahead of us. So, Jack, you obviously know who that gentleman was to whom we were just introduced. Why are we talking about Miguel Cardona right now? Uh, 
I, <laughs> I wish, I wish we weren't talking about him for this reason. Uh, you know, I feel like people have a lot of reasons to feel good about Miguel Cardona as Secretary of Education, particularly in light of who held that office for four years before him. But it seems like Cardona, as a representative of the Biden administration, um, is just sort of without a plan and that the administration lacks a vision with regard to public education. You know, Betsy DeVos, for as unpopular as she was, not just with Democrats, but with many mainstream conservatives who knew what she was up to, um, at least there was a vision, right? Like you can at least credit her with having a... Uh, a vision of what she wanted to do, where she wanted to drag schools kicking and screaming into the future. And that just simply isn't true of the Biden administration, where what we have seen is a retreat to the old neoliberal consensus, where, you know, immediately we saw support for standards and accountability testing, right? Cardona came out and made this really ham-handed argument in favor of testing where the logic was, you know, completely circular that we need to give tests because we need to figure out where there are needy kids. Um, and so even though low-income kids and kids of color uh, are going to ultimately uh be harmed by the results of testing. Uh, we need to do it so that we can find out where they are. I mean, it, it was completely nonsensical. And here we have him appearing at a charter school convention where the right has moved on from charters. Charters were a way station for them en route to you know, a much more extreme end, which would basically be universal vouchers everywhere. And they're driving that forward at the state level. And it's like Cardona doesn't know, right? It's like the Biden administration hasn't gotten the memo that conservatives are no longer uh, willing to engage in a kind of centrist treaty where everybody kind of camps out uh, around performance management via testing and accountability systems and this kind of modified approach to school choice where you know Republicans give up their stuff, right? They don't push for a voucher. They don't push for religion in school. Uh, Democrats give up their stuff, right? The left gives up its push for things like fairer funding or better conditions for teachers, support for their unions. Uh, and, you know, they, they just agree to get along in this middle zone. Uh, the right has moved on from that. And, you know, here we see uh, Joe Biden and Miguel Cardona still sitting around the campfire waiting to sing Kumbaya with uh, centrist Republicans. And nobody's there. Well, I can imagine at this point people are probably wondering, where's Jennifer? Doesn't she have any insights? <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I didn't. It's, we're, we're, I, th I thought I was supposed to answer that question. Was I supposed to like set you up to make a, an insight? Okay, so what do you think, Jennifer? Listeners, please ignore the condescending tone in my co-host's <laughs> voice. Well, no, I think you're. I think you're exactly right. And what's so frustrating about this is that you can go. You can look at all sorts of other issues and see that the Biden administration seems intent on breaking 
with what came before them in all kinds of important and very visible ways. And I'm thinking about, you know, the extent to which they're embracing redistributive, I can never say that word, the the extent to which they're embracing um, redistribution and economics. Um, in just a few weeks, direct payments are going to start to families with kids. Um, this very open acknowledgement that the, the Obama folks fell short in so many ways. And so that's what, to me, makes it so frustrating that they just continue to sort of stumble about in the field of education. All right, Jack, are you ready for item number two? Uh, I I worry, having having gone one for one so far, I worry about what item number two is. Okay, I feel I'm, like this, you're setting me up for failure here, but go ahead. That may be the case. Okay, so I'm going to play, <laughs> this is a little audio hint, and I want you to take it in and then see if you can deduce what we're going to be talking about. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Okay, Jack. So obviously you are familiar with that tune. Whose birthday is it? I, Jennifer, it's your birthday. No, Jack. If you, no. if you were a oh, close listener. I, 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 I thought that if I just said it with confidence that maybe it would work. No, okay. I know your birthday, by the way. Having stupidly said that, I know your birthday is in late December. See that? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. So whose okay. birthday is it? So I thought for sure you would know this. Jack, charter schools are 30 years old this month. <laughs> Uh, shame on me for not having gotten that. Yeah. Well, so I I raised this because I, you know, I was sort of thinking about writing a piece. You know, it's it's the birthday of the charter school movement. Dot dot dot. Worst birthday party ever. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked a little bit just now about the conditions on the ground that have changed, and I think a lot of people, a lot of people taking this in. From afar, probably you know they feel like like charter schools are still on the march and on the move, and maybe are not aware of how much you know how much things have changed. And so one of the big things that's changed is the makeup of the political coalition. And so Jack, I want you to take us back thirty years to Minnesota in June and just paint a little picture for us of who it was that came together in that original and. Inspiring scene. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, in that original push for charter schools, which emerged from Minnesota, and we've done some history of this in the show previously, uh, there was a kind of coalition of, gosh, what do you even call, I guess we call them traditional conservatives, right? Like Eisenhower conservatives, um, along with... Uh, you know, the sort of early neoliberal Democrats, these Democrats who believed that government was the problem, uh, but they were still trying to solve social problems. They still believed in things like um, equity, 
uh, and you know using government in some way to help people. It's just that you know government had to get out of the way in trying to help people by cooperating with the business community or by uh, you know opening the opportunity for markets to work. Um, and then also progressive educators were a part of this mix. And it makes me almost wistful saying it, right? It, it's like such a naive time if you go back to these early days of the movement because if you talk to somebody like Ted Coldery, who was really one of the masterminds of the charter school idea in Minnesota, if you talk to him about what he thinks about what charters have become, I think he's really disappointed. Uh, I think he really did honestly believe that it would create space for um, you know all kinds of different approaches to education and you know that truly a thousand flowers would bloom and I mean a thousand and he was really excited about, how excited teachers were. This was not solely a neoliberal idea. Um, it was not only about a sort of blind belief in markets. And it certainly had nothing to do with test scores because it was a decade prior to NCLB. And what we've seen is that that original vision has really been constrained by the fact that charter schools are held accountable for their test scores, that really what we've seen is that the market has encouraged a kind of monoculture where there's just really a, a dominance of a particular kind of charter school, even though some progressive charter schools remain. And we actually did an interesting episode with Elise Castillo on that um, a year or two ago. And uh, the movement as a whole was kind of captured by what we've referred to as the neoliberal consensus, right? Conservatives and mainstream Democrats working together around a vision that kind of tugged charters away from that original vision. And, and because of that, charters are now kind of in trouble because conservatives have broken from that and are now pushing something much more radical. And that leaves questions about you know, who on the left is going to stand up for charters since they have been pulled away from anything resembling the progressive roots that might have been there at the start. So I think even people who know nothing at all about charter schools would, when they heard your description back at the beginning of that somewhat lengthy response, when you when you were describing <laughs> nice. that political coalition in um, in Minnesota, like that's exactly what no longer exists anymore, really regardless of what the issue is. And so the question is, what do you do? And so if you look at what's playing out in these states that have really made this sharp right turn, so if you're somebody who still really believes believes in charter schools and wants to see them expand, it means you have to form new political bedfellows, including with those who might not seem like an obvious choice, especially right now when the discourse about education in general and the kinds of civil rights arguments that charter advocates have made for so long now seem to be a political hot button. And that takes us to item number three. Are you ready, Jack? CRT. I'm ready. <laughs> CRT. Well, no, I'm you done. weren't supposed to blurt it out. I'm, let me at least play my audio clip. Okay, here we go. Uh, the young people we witnessed rioting and looting in some of our largest cities came out of an education system that had taught them to hate America. 
I think that's really sad. <clears throat> the source of the hatred can be traced directly to the emphasis on identity culture, which separates us into special interest groups. Each group is isolated from the other by mistrust, stemming from perceived grievances and artificial cultural barriers. The class, the class be being proposed to this body known as American Studies is one that continues the misguided methods of emphasizing the negative differences between American citizens. So obviously, Jack, it feels like there could not be any more coverage of this issue, right? It's I feel like it's all I read about. I've been writing about it. We already did a fantastic episode about it. But I still feel as though there are key points of this story that people are missing. And I have a couple, and then I'm hoping that you can you can weigh in and and enlighten us. So I very much see this playing out as a political story, as an extension of the election and also the pandemic. That there is this kind of rage out there. There's you know there's rage amongst people who feel that they didn't like the results of the election, or they actually feel like Biden didn't win. And then you have a lot of this anger left over from the pandemic. And so if you look at how this is playing out with other issues, you see that these there were these sort of policy agendas sitting on the shelf that, you know, for, for many decades basically, and that these conservative groups have figured out a way to tap into that stew of resentment and say, okay, mad about the election? Great, you're getting education savings accounts. And so the like what's interesting is you if you look around the way this is playing out in the states, um, how flexible CRT is as a category, it's it basically just gets to attach to whatever Republican legislators in that state don't like. So in Iowa, for example, this week, when asked to point to some examples of teachers whose teaching was informed by critical race theory, the legislator in question could not. Instead, he talked about things like unions and school funding. He talked about minimum wage increases. And so it becomes this just a catch-all for grievance. But I also feel like there's a piece of this that I don't necessarily understand, that these white parents in particular clearly are responding to something, whether it's phony or not. And I wonder if you have a better sense of what that is. And also if you, if it reminds you of something we've seen before. You're right, Jennifer, that this is really a Trojan horse, right? That CRT is being used to smuggle in whatever uh, the right is trying to levy as a criticism. And they're doing it under the banner of CRT. And that then raises this question of, you know, why is that an effective Trojan horse? And I think the reason is that they are building a white racial coalition, right? That this is an old move in the U.S. Uh, whenever people are being divided by, you know, uh, economic interests or, uh, you know, genuinely different visions of the future, one way to unify white people is around the concept of race and to make them feel like 
they stand to lose something. Uh, that you know, whatever is being pushed by some white people is actually in favor of the interests of non-white people, and that if people of color stand to benefit, it will come directly at the expense of whites. And the people who get most upset about that, in most cases, are uh, working-class white people. Uh, are white people who have been left behind by the economy uh, are you know people who are clinging tenuously to the middle class. It's not the uh, the elite. It's not the one percenters who worry that they're going to lose something. Um, they can you know get on board with the culture war. They can get ginned up just as well as anybody else around racial resentment, but. You know, we've seen this before, and, and we've also seen it before in education. Uh, we saw it during the push to desegregate schools, right? Parents being worked up that somehow their white kids were going to be at a disadvantage because schools would be racially integrated. We saw it during the so-called back to basics movement of the late 1970s, right? Where there was a narrative that Schools were completely out of control, that they were violent, that they were teaching nonsense, and that parents really had to step in and do something. And, you know, you really can't remove race from any of that because anytime people's concerns are being raised about, you know, whether or not their kids are losing opportunity, we have to think about whether or not these are white parents who uh, have been essentially, uh, you know, called to action by a dog whistle around the fact that other kids, that kids of color, that racially marginalized and racially minoritized kids um, might actually be getting uh, the, the fair shake that they deserve. Um, you know, this is a, a really complicated situation that has no obvious answer other than, I think, to talk about it in pretty straightforward terms, uh, you know, to to talk about the fact that people are being drawn together in a racial alliance in a way that really thwarts things like, you know, class allegiance and that that's really intentional, um, that it's a distraction and that it, it's always an effective distractor. And that I think in talking about it, you know, maybe there will be some self-awareness of people who otherwise might have been drawn into it. The other thing I would add to this is that part of what makes it so explosive is that you know people really have come to believe that you know opportunity is rationed. There's only a limited amount of it, right? And so, like that's why that's why it's it's so it's you know it's just like this bomb going off that you know people feel like their kids have one shot. And what and so I actually think it goes much further up the sort of class you know hierarchy than you're talking about that that that. You can look at parents who, have, by my standards, are you know they're they're living well, and yet they still feel they fear that their kids are going to have less opportunity than they did because we're such an unequal society, and so that's why it's so important that they have 
every AP class, right? And the the idea that somebody is going to, some social justice warrior is going to take that away. Um, But my big frustration, as it so often is, is that the way this is being talked about, like I don't even know how many stories I've read where the response is, this legislator doesn't even know what critical race theory is. Like that is not going to really help us with this. Yeah, uh, and I think you're right there uh, that, because we live in such an unequal society that even people doing well worry about their kids being downwardly mobile. I think that's an important observation. And and I think that the fact that it doesn't uh, matter to the folks who are you know railing against CRT, it doesn't matter to them what it is. And I think that the fact that so many of the folks who are getting so worked up about critical race theory don't really understand what it is. Um, you know, marks an interesting parallel with Betsy DeVos uh, not really having a deep understanding of public education, right? It's not that they're dumb, it's simply that they don't care because it doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. Uh, and I think that. You know that's an important part of the conversation here, right? Rather than trying to, as I've seen, you know, many progressives doing on Twitter, uh, engage in a sort of you know gotcha moment, right? That they don't even know what it is. It's like, of course they don't, because they don't care. Um, you haven't you haven't gotten them there, right? The trick is to then unpack in an effective way for people why it doesn't matter what it is and what's actually going on. Because again, I think it's a dog whistle. All right, Jack, for our final item of our long, hot education summer, even though it really is only June. Um, so I'm going to play a sound effect for you, already knowing that you'll have no idea what this alludes to. Ready? <laughs> oh, great, perfect. Can't wait. Jack, do you have any idea what that refers to? That's a metaphor for your attention span while I'm responding to these questions. I hadn't thought about that, but this actually does play a dual metaphoric role. Actually, I I picked that because I I feel like Really, in the last year, the education reform movement has sputtered to a mm. resounding halt mm-hmm. with almost right. no one commenting on it. Right. And right. I feel like I see one little story after another. Um, for example, these sort of high-profile charter networks that were really the darlings, um, one after another, they've now come you know, under fire for like really high-profile Fraud allegations, and I'm thinking of a democracy prep or idea charter network out of out of Texas. You know, suddenly their leadership all has to step down. Um, and then there are the favored policies like school turnarounds. Right? Suddenly, you know, there's uh, there uh, are these big studies coming out that that look at how little these have produced and how high the political costs have been. And I feel like you can just go down the list. Of, of policy items and high-flying kind of education reform individuals and organizations and see that that they've run out of steam. Do you have the same sense? Yeah, and actually I'm going to throw you a treat here for your, uh, I think we're actually at your half birthday. So happy half birthday, Jennifer. Uh, boy, do I have a great democracy prep story for you for In the Weeds. Um 
But yeah, you're so right about this movement sputtering to a halt and sort of nobody noticed. I mean, think about how breathless the enthusiasm for education reform has been over the past couple decades. And I feel like, you know, the final uh, act there was uh, an NBA jersey that said education reform on the back of it, right? Um, and, and, you know, look back and, and think about all of Arnie Duncan's speeches. Think about Race to the Top. Think about the Gates Foundation, right? We've been living for the past 20 years, uh, you know, longer if you want to go all the way back to a nation at risk. But it's really been intense for the past two decades where there has been a belief that we can identify, quote unquote, what works and then we can take it to scale. And that through this kind of entrepreneurial approach where you know we kind of work backwards from the positive outcomes that we'll be able to identify through standardized test scores and graduation rates, um, we can then identify those places that are quote unquote beating the odds. I mean, think about all these phrases, right? Uh, where you know there are these measurable gains um, and we are going to to you know, find these best practices, these high leverage practices that we can then fund so that uh, you know we replicate them every place. And I think what was sustaining that was not evidence, but was hot air, right? Uh, it was a hot air balloon that was buoyed by rhetoric. And as soon as we got a break from that, and, and we did, and interestingly, I think that a big part of that break is due to Betsy DeVos, right? That she pushed such a radical vision that was so different from the Ed Reform vision that we have been living in as a kind of hallucination over the past couple decades, um, that... You know, I think it, it gave people enough space to sort of step to the side of the Ed Reform mirage and to see it for what it was. And I think all of a sudden people are wondering the same thing I'm wondering, uh, which is why have we pretended that we don't know how to improve schools? Like, why has that been our approach for the past couple of decades, right? Why have we said like, gosh, we have no idea what to do. Like, let's look around, let's use test scores to try to identify good schools and let's work backwards and piece together how we might do this. Um, that That is a false exercise predicated on the belief that maybe there's a way to do this without investment. Uh, because the way to improve schools, as we know from a lot of research and a lot of wisdom of practice, is going to take investment, right? But we also know how to do it. We know how to strengthen school culture. We know how to integrate schools. We know how to uh, support the teaching profession, right, from one end of the pipeline to another. Um, we know how to support instructional improvement inside schools. We know how to promote instructional leadership among principals. We know how to promote coherence inside a school or a district. Like, like we know, we know what to do. And 
We just haven't been doing it because we've been engaging in this sort of fantastical thinking uh, for the past couple decades. And so I'm actually looking forward to what comes next once we get past, uh, you know, this current moment where, again, the Democrats are sort of looking around, blinking in the sunlight, trying to figure out what to do, and they're still acting like uh, it's, you know, 2010. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next. Well, what happens next is actually the In the Weeds segment that we do for our Patreon subscribers. And <laughs> I'm, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it too, because I just learned that you're going to be sharing with me some kind of secret story about democracy prep, mm-hmm. the acclaimed charter chain. And as it would happen, I have a story to share with you as well. So if you want to hear Jack and I dish I love when people say dish. <laughs> if you want to hear Jack and I dish about democracy prep, all you have to do is go to oh, patreon.com slash have you heard podcast and become a supporter. You'll see a list of the cool extras you can get. We do a reading list every episode and you get to join us in the weeds. And that's where we reveal these secret stories about charter chains. Who can resist that? For those of you who want to keep your euros and you're, you're giving me a weird look, Jennifer, I'm... I'm internationalizing our audience here. Our, your euros and your yen and your renminbi and your drachmas in your wallets. Uh, there are other ways to support the show. Uh, so please go on and make sure that you are subscribing to make sure that you get our latest episodes. While you're there, you can give us a rating. That helps people find us. I always like when people share the show. Uh, either their favorite episode or the latest episode with people who they might think will enjoy it. We've got a Twitter handle at Have You Heard Pod. We've gotten lots of great ideas for shows from you in the past, and we always like knowing uh, that you're listening and we love hearing what you think. And the Have You Heard mailbag is a fun place for us to sort through your concerns and uh, and praise. And grievances, your grievances. I, I, I was going to say grievances, <laughs> but I'll just go with praise. We love, we love that part particularly. Um, the praise can be addressed to me. If you have any other issues, you can address those to Jennifer. Um, and I, th- I think that's it. That's my spiel. Thank you for that, Jack. People particularly like your effort to steer them away from the paywall wall episode after episode. On that <laughs> note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. 